Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. It's the early evening of November 14th, 1849, Rochester, New York. Two teen girls in white dresses sit alone on a music hall stage lit with candles and lanterns. Their stomachs roil with nerves as they watch nearly 400 people file in. Adding to the creepiness of the room is the pounding rain outside. The girls on stage are Kate and Maggie Fox, just 12 and 16 years old. They look innocent with their dark, shiny hair, translucent skin, and wide, expressive eyes. They can hardly believe all these strangers have braved the worst weather here in decades just to see them. And they've paid a lot of money to do it. Tonight, these people have come to watch Kate and Maggie Fox talk to dead people. Well, if they're being honest, a lot have paid good money to watch the girls fail. The whole thing sounds just too good to be true. Speak with the dead? Hogwash. And yet, they remain hopeful. After all, this is Rochester. This Erie Canal boom town represents all the newness and optimism and progressive spirit of America. The frontier is closing, and this town is helping lead the way. These are modern people, and they should be open to modern ideas. What if there is something to the rumors surrounding these girls? What if they can, like some people say, actually speak to the dearly departed? The candles and lanterns dim, and a hush falls over the audience. In that moment, the girls realize this is their one and only chance to come clean. Nerves set in. Maybe they should just stand up and beg forgiveness, return everyone's money. It's their chance to tell everyone that what they've been doing for the last year is based on lies, trickery, and deceit. But Kate and Maggie Fox have always been able to sense what the other is thinking. And right now... They're both a step ahead, thinking the same thing. This is their chance to take charge of their lives, to chart their own course. This could be their way out of a dreary future, limited to obligation and marriage to insert name here. Maybe a life saddled with children and boredom and not much else. Also, what's the harm? In fact, if all these good people in the audience want to think they're getting something for their hard-earned cash, it would be wrong to take that away. In that split second, the decision is made. The girls remain silent. They continue the ruse. It's time, and the show must go on. It's Kate who starts things off that night. She calls out to the open air, beckoning any presence in this hall from beyond the grave to do exactly as she does. Kate snaps her fingers loudly three times. There's a pause as the entire hall goes still. It's as though everyone's holding their breath, and then... Three loud raps, clear as day. The sound echoes from the highest corners of the music hall to the lowest, and the crowd gasps. Then, the older girl addresses the air. Are you a spirit? Again, three loud raps in return. It goes on like this for hours, with the two girls on stage asking questions and awaiting knocks in response. The audience can't get enough of it. The show is amazing! These Fox sisters, they are the real deal. Well, okay. There are people that claim they're able to receive messages and information from spirits. Maybe you believe it's true, maybe you don't. Point is, there are lots of people who've made a living around this idea of communicating with the dead. And many of them say it's real. But Kate and Maggie? They are not those people. No one is more surprised that night than the Fox sisters themselves. They've pulled off yet another incredible fraud. For them, there are no mad or sad spirits. There are only extremely loose joints in the girl's fingers and toes, and they've figured out how to snap at will and very loudly. 
they also have this hereditary construct that lets them control their leg muscles below the knee. As in, they can crack toe and ankle bones in isolation without moving any other parts of their bodies. No movement, no giveaway. It's a rare condition, and over the years, the girls have honed their craft enough to make waves. That is, sound waves. That rainy evening in 1849, Kate and Maggie Fox become infused with a confidence that will make them American and even European celebrities. They have no idea just how popular and revered they're going to become over the next 30 years. And in turn, how many exploited and grieving souls their devious deceptions will leave in their wake. Nor do they know that they'll become the figureheads and poster children for a new religion called spiritualism, a dogma that still has a healthy following to this day. Kate and Maggie also don't realize, as oohs and ahs from a once skeptical audience fill the air, that in the decades following their decision to full-on trick people, they will come to suffer enormously on a personal level. They'll have to up the ante on their tricks, have to come up with ever more sophisticated ways of convincing people they can communicate with spirits, all while wrestling with guilt and alcoholism. And in the midst of stress, they'll be blackmailed by their own sister. But how did this whole charade even begin? More importantly, what is in the hearts of these child swindlers and the network of adult swindlers surrounding them that allows the Fox sisters' fraud to snowball into a worldwide phenomenon whose repercussions are still felt today in a modern world with Long Island mediums, Sylvia Browns and John Edwards, where heartbroken souls give their hard-earned money to supposed clairvoyance for answers to the unanswerable? We'll get to that. But all you need to know now is, as the Fox sisters sit in that crowded hall, snap crackling and popping their joints, they're getting a taste of power so addictive, it's simply from another world. History happened. The good, bad, the ugly. This is the underside of history. The lesser known pieces lost in the bigger picture of time. From the creators of myths and legends and from cast media, this is Scoundrel, history's forgotten villains. We're Jason and Carissa Weiser. Join us every episode as we explore the dark, quirky, and bizarre history that you might not have heard before, but really should. What if we told you all of this began as nothing more than a crazy prank? Let us explain. Margaret and Catherine are born in 1833 and 1837, respectively, in New Brunswick, Canada, two of the youngest children of John and Margaret Fox. Fast forward a few years, since not much is truly known about their young childhoods, and in December 1847, the Fox family moves to Hydesville, New York. Geographically, it's not far from Rochester in western New York, but it is far less sophisticated. It's an idyllic place, a tiny cluster of farms and fields. Their father, John, is a reformed alcoholic and is looking for a fresh start with their mother, also called Maggie, but we'll refer to her as Margaret. They rent a farmhouse, along with their three older children. In March of 1848, Kate and Maggie, as the youngest and naturally thickest thieves, are outside doing chores. They come across one of their new neighbors. Her name is Mary Redfield, and the girls confide in her about the strange noises they've been hearing every night before bed. Mary is skeptical at the news. The family, they say, has been hearing raps, knocks, if you will, every time they try to fall asleep. Their father, John, has been trying to find the source of the noises, but hasn't found answers yet. Kate and Maggie tell her how exhausted their mother is from worry and lack of sleep. Mary thinks about it, but dismisses the story. After all, the Foxes live in a farmhouse like most others in Hydesville. The noises they're hearing are probably just the settling of the roof or a loose shutter, maybe a family of raccoons or rats. But soon after, John Fox comes to ask the Redfields for help. The raps have grown even louder and more pronounced. Mrs. Fox is terrified, he says. Mr. Redfield declines to leave the comfort of his house for what he thinks is some kind of misunderstanding. But Mrs. Redfield decides to humor her neighbors. She puts on her coat and goes over to the Fox house. Their bedroom is dark, except for a single candle casting an eerie glow. This is 19th century rural America, so Mrs. Redfield is not surprised when she sees that mom and dad share a bedroom with their two youngest daughters. She is, however, surprised to see the terror on the faces of young Kate and Maggie huddled together in their shared bed. Mrs. Fox pulls Mary Redfield down closer to her. Watch this, she says. 
then, she says loudly to some unseen entity, count to five. Mrs. Redfield is stunned. Mrs. Fox continues. Now, count to 15, she says. Sure enough, there are 15 sharp raps in return, seemingly coming from thin air. Then, Mrs. Fox asks the entity to give a knock for each year of Mary Redfield's age. Sure enough, 33 knocks follow. Kate looks at Maggie, delighted. She thinks it's hilarious. Not only is the strange snapping noise from her leg tricking their mother, it's now working on their neighbor, too. Maggie nearly bursts into laughter. Their whole life, they've been at the whim of their parents' control, being told what to do and when to do it. Now, they're literally frightening grown-ups, and not just their parents. Kate and Maggie are moving adults outside the family. It's more fun than they've had in years. At this point, Kate and Maggie are likely about to fess up to everything. Oh, but now they can't. Their mother's face is no longer tickled with amusement. It's full-on drained, horrified. She's at the edge of a panic attack. Kate and Maggie see that this is no longer funny. And if they're found out, they'll be in big trouble. Desperate for answers, Mrs. Fox sweeps up the candle and starts searching the house. There has to be an explanation. She turns to Kate, desperate for an answer. Kate, now too frightened to confess, says whatever comes to mind. Yeah, she's seen something. It's... It's the menace making the noise. An invisible spirit. A spirit named Mr. Splitfoot. Mr. Splitfoot? Who is Mr. Splitfoot? Splitfoot is a term used to describe the devil. Wait, is the devil in their home? Young Maggie, now also frightened by the big deal this has become, claps her hands four times and commands the ghost to wrap back. Four knocks follow. Then, as if on cue... Sister Kate responds by making soft, finger-snapping gestures that, in turn, are answered with raps. They're digging their hole bigger and bigger, but it's all in an attempt to avoid taking the blame. This was supposed to be a prank. But it's just too creepy that there's no sign of anyone in the room somehow making these noises. Kate tries to end the madness without coming clean to the whole ordeal. She assures her mother that someone is probably just playing an April Fool's joke on them. Uh, Not her and Maggie, of course, but someone. After all, it's now getting into the wee hours of April 1st. But Mrs. Fox refuses to accept that this whole episode might be some sort of prank. She knows what she saw, and she knows what she heard. So she decides to test this manifestation for herself. Aloud, she asks if the spirit is somehow injured, and if it is, to rap three times. Immediately, There are three knocks in return. Okay, now Mrs. Fox has to know, who was the ghost in life? For a moment, nothing happens. Is this the moment when the ruse comes to an end? How can the girls answer Mrs. Fox with nothing but knocking noises? Panicked, Maggie and Kate find a solution. As a quick sidebar, Maggie and Kate often complete each other's thoughts and sentences. This is something outsiders and relatives alike often notice, that the girls are very simpatico. So it's not surprising that one starts with a theme or an idea and the other finishes it. Weirdly enough, they sometimes refer to themselves as one entity. As for neighbor Mary Redfield, she is enthralled, if not downright scared. She pulls her husband out of bed and they return to the foxes. And the ghost does not disappoint. The raps begin and the spirit answers basic questions posed by the neighbors and the foxes. Over the next few hours, a story unfolds as the spirit raps out a narrative. He is, or was, a peddler, murdered, and buried in the farmhouse basement. His name? Well, like the eight ball says, not clear. It's not a suitable answer for Mrs. Fox. So the spirit, the girls claim, is, that is, was, a 31-year-old married man, the father of five, and dead for more than two years. The foxes and Mrs. Redfield gasp. Mrs. Fox asks, if I call in the neighbors, will you knock for them too? And the knock says yes. Don't be a scoundrel like the Fox sisters. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And let us know of a scoundrel you'd like us to cover. We might just pick yours. 
Today's episode is sponsored by Honey, the easiest way to save when shopping on your iPhone or computer. We have fully embraced the art of online shopping, haven't we? It's my preferred way to shop. I know immediately what's in stock. I don't have to go anywhere. You can also save a lot of money if you can sort out all those promo codes out there. I can barely keep track of all the URLs and codes for our shows, so I know I need help for shopping at large. Thanks to Honey, manually searching for coupon codes is a thing of the past. Honey is the free shopping tool that scours the internet for promo codes and applies the best one it finds to your cart. This is such a simple but effective browser extension. I use it all the time. And Honey doesn't just work on desktop. It works on your iPhone, too. Just activate it on Safari on your phone and save on the go. I've got back to school on my mind. It's the clothes, the supplies, the lunches to pack. Honey saved us $54 on clothes and supplies, plus another $14 on grocery items for lunches, just with a click of a button. If you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out. And by getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting this show. I'd never recommend something I don't use. Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash scoundrel. That's joinhoney.com slash scoundrel. Back to school season. It brings back all the feels, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I was always excited to get back into learning and see what I could master. It's why we love having Wondrium. This educational platform has courses on just about Every topic you can imagine from top university professors and experts who are, honestly, incredible teachers. I can't believe what we have access to. It's even better, though, because no homework. <laughs> and no grades. Just learning for the pure enjoyment of learning. I highly recommend one of their brand new programs, Traveling the Roman Empire. This program was an adventure from the comfort of home. You're rock climbing, you're biking, even scuba diving. Also, you can see these historic locations from new perspectives. Archaeologist Darius Arya is fantastic. He's an expert on this topic. I had no idea how much influence ancient Rome had around the world or how they leveraged their unique resources. It surprised even me. And I thought I knew all about it. So that's my review. It was fascinating. From history and science to DIY and crafts. Wondrium lets us all learn anything we're curious about. We know you'll love Wondrium too, and we want you to sign up today. Wondrium is offering our listeners a free month of unlimited access. To get this offer, you need to visit our special URL, wondrium.com slash scoundrel. Again, that's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash S-C-O-U-N-D-R-E-L. The Redfields gather other neighbors, and so on and so on. Over the next few days, half of Hydesville cycles in and out of the Fox household. One of the visitors proposes a way to speed things up. He assigns numbers to letters of the alphabet, so the spirit can spell out words, even sentences. Everyone wants to know more about this invisible being. Apparently, the peddler had been robbed, his throat sliced with a butcher knife. After that, his body was buried 10 feet below the surface of the fox's dirt cellar. He'd been haunting the house ever since. By using the numbers and letter codes, the fox girls eventually provide the name of this ghost fellow. No one's heard of a man by this name in the neighborhood, but this detail is quickly brushed aside. After all, this is the land of the Erie Canal. There are always strangers passing through. Several men of Hydesville venture down to the cellar to investigate. They start to dig a little, searching for the remains of this unfortunate soul. And then, it's the perfect storm. As in, heavy spring rains combined with the farmhouse's location near a creek means the excavation pit fills with groundwater, and the investigation gets put on hold. Meanwhile, the Fox family decides maybe they don't want to live in a haunted house anymore. As petrified as the entire neighborhood is of the spooky tale of the murdered peddler, Kate and Maggie are even more afraid. They have single-handedly watched their juvenile prank, a fun attempt to scare their mother, grip the fears and nightmares of an entire town. But how can they make it stop? Can they simply turn the spigot righty-tighty to turn off the mania before it floods more out of control? Say they do confess. Well, then what? They make their family the laughingstock of the town? Pariahs to be shunned and ignored? Their parents would never forgive them. But there's another thing. True. Kate and Maggie have never felt such attention from their parents before. No fault of their own. Managing a farm and a family of six children isn't easy. The unfortunate truth is Kate and Maggie are in way over their heads. But they can't stop now. And this is where we meet a new character in this tale of deceit. It's one of Kate and Maggie's siblings. An older sibling. She's 35 years old. 
and her name is Leah Fish. She's a divorced single mother living in Rochester. It's a cool day in 1847 at a local school in Rochester. The Academy's music teacher, Ms. Fish, sits at a table finishing lunch. She watches as a fellow teacher reads the local newspaper. Get this, the other teacher perks up. Hydesville is haunted. Leah rolls her eyes. She's not interested in the local gossip. She's had quite the day teaching a bunch of squawking children how to sing. No time for tall tales. Thank you very much. The other teacher proceeds. Yeah, says here a couple local girls named Maggie and Kate Fox are communicating with the devil. Leah nearly chokes and grabs the newspaper from across the table. Her eyes dart back and forth as she reads for herself. Sure enough, the words are right there. Kate and Maggie Fox. She slowly lowers the paper. Those are my sisters. Leah races to Hydesville to her parents' home. Her relationship with them isn't super tight. As the eldest child, she received the brunt of their parental inexperience and bad decisions. But that's not what's on her mind right now. Right now, she needs to get to the bottom of this. Chased away from their home due to the haunting hoopla, John and Maggie Fox, haggard and weary, have relocated to another house in town. Naturally, the spirit of that murdered peddler seems to have come along for the ride. There's no escape, it seems. And so, upon her arrival, Leah demands that her little sisters show her the spirit. Just as they've done dozens of times at this point, Kate and Maggie do not disappoint. Knocks, raps, bangs, the whole thing unfolds in the darkened room like many times before. Leah is overwhelmed. But it isn't fear that raptures her like all the other locals. She's not like them. She's worldly. She lives in Rochester. Yeah, so she ain't no fool. Instead, she's overwhelmed with excitement. Leah demands that her sisters tell her how they did that. Kate and Maggie, still petrified of getting in trouble, insist that it's genuine. Well, yeah, right. Leah is accepting none of that. She's not her naive parents. She can sniff lies a mile away, and her nostrils are on fire. At last, the girls relent. They show and tell her everything, how their joints make the snapping noise, all of it. They even explain that it all started one day when they decided to play a prank on mom by attaching apples to strings to make it sound like spooky footsteps. Wincing, Kate and Maggie await their punishment. Will it be a slap or a spanking? What will their parents do when Leah rats them out? Turns out, Leah's gonna handle this one on her own. No parents? No parents. Leah isn't angry, she's intrigued. It's not red she's seeing. It's dollar signs. Quite the entrepreneur-minded enterprise herself, Leah does the calculations in her head. From a marketing perspective, you can't buy the word-of-mouth power of what's going on here. And the economics of it? The demand for communication with the dead is through the roof. Remember, this is mid-19th century rural America. During the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution, pestilence and disease were rampant with unacceptably high infant mortality rates. People are dying in droves, and Leah delights. Everyone wants to talk with their dead relatives. And from a supply side, forget about it. This is the only game in town. This ruse is a license to print money, and Leah is ready to grab the wheel. See, life has been rather unkind to Leah Fish. As we know, she's a single mother. She knows divorce. She also knows that no one is out there waiting to save her. And now, she's standing before a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And if she doesn't pounce right this minute, economic insecurity will likely plague her for the rest of her life. Leah quickly moves her youngest sisters into a Rochester home and starts charging for seances. They become such an instant smash, she realizes that she can double the income by separating the girls so they can perform individually. Word spreads quickly, and soon... A measly house can no longer satisfy the insatiable demand for communicating with the dead. By the time Maggie and Kate Fox appear at the music hall that night in November of 1849, they have thousands of people interested in their alleged connection to the afterlife. It's after this night, and because of these girls, that the term spiritualism explodes onto the American scene as a new belief system allowing direct communication with the deceased. For the Fox girls... It's a little less complicated. 
Maggie, Kate, and Leah are making money, period. By the fall of 1849, the girls are known as trance mediums. Very, very special people who can be conduits for spirits. As a self-appointed tour manager, Leah books appearances all over New York. She even gets a suite at Barnum's Hotel, owned by a cousin of the famed showman. Of course, that means P.T. Barnum himself comes to see the girls perform. The Foxes hold their sessions in the hotel's parlor and hold sessions morning, noon, and night. Admission is $1, about $35 today. Visitors are like the who's who of New York society. There's Horace Greeley, the eccentric and influential editor of the New York Tribune. There's adventure writer James Fenimore Cooper, whose sister died in a horseback riding accident some 50 years before. The Fox Girls describe the accident so clearly that Cooper is an instant believer. Everyone knows someone who's passed. Everyone has an interest. There's editor and poet William Cullen Bryant, an abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison. In fact, it's Garrison who witnesses a session in which the spirits rap in time to a popular song and spell out a message. In not so many words, the message is that spiritualism is the wave of the future, that it will guide reform movements in America. In 1850, the trio decides that Leah will stay in New York, entertaining callers in a seance room. You see, as a way to pad their profit margin even further, they reason they need to get Leah involved in medium duties as well. While she doesn't have the joint-cracking ability that her sisters do, Leah learns how to seemingly put herself in a trance and give ambiguous answers to clients. In turn, those clients interpret her answers to what's familiar to them. They adapt to their own circumstances. Naturally, one-on-one clients are charged more money. And while Leah's in New York, Kate and Maggie take their show to other cities, like Cleveland, Cincinnati, St. Louis, and beyond. There's even merchandise. Stores and hotels in NYC sell inexpensive souvenirs with the term Rochester Wrappers on it. At this point, all three Fox sisters are making more money than they ever dreamed they could. For Kate and Maggie, however, there's something more. They are calling the shots. Today's sponsor is a podcast we're sure you'll love. A podcast within a podcast? It is. It's the Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard us talk about it before, but that's because it has a lot of variety and a lot of elements that, if you like Scoundrel, you'll like about Jordan's show, too. Like getting to know real people, being informed about stuff you might not have heard before, and digging into something that's interesting and that makes you think. Except Jordan's actually talking with the people on his show. It doesn't get better than hearing it straight from the guests. From neuroscientists to counterfeiters to astronauts, authors, uh, thinkers, performers, Jordan talks to everybody. And you'd be surprised what he can pull from each conversation. You just get pulled in. That's the mark of a good podcast, right? It is. So with tons of guests, where do you start? I recommend checking out his conversation with Amanda Katarzy. She survived a cult-dominated childhood, trafficking, abuse, and now helps law enforcement stop it from happening to others. Amanda has an unbelievable story. Another interesting one, and quite appropriate for today's episode about the Fox sisters, it's Jordan's conversation with Eric Vance on the curious science of the suggestible you. It'd be interesting to listen to right after today's episode. Oh yeah, totally agreed. We really enjoy this show, and we think you will as well. There's a lot to like. Check out jordanharbinger.com slash start for some episode recommendations. Or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's important to prioritize your mental health and wellness every day. We cannot stress that enough. Because when you work on yourself, you start to see and feel positive changes in all areas of your life. Challenges are a fact of life, but the long-term effects of therapy can give you tools to deal with them, strengthen your relationships, and give you a more optimistic outlook. And there's no better time to invest in yourself than right now. I found that taking the first step was the toughest part. Do I need it? Is it the right time? We had all those common thoughts, but then I realized that there's no need to wait for something to go wrong in life to work with a therapist. Talkspace is the number one online therapy platform with thousands of licensed therapists trained in over 40 specialties. And getting started is convenient and secure. It could be depression, anxiety, difficult relationships. Talkspace licensed therapists can help you deal with it all. Talking with someone who's trained and not in your inner circle was life-changing. I never thought therapy was for me, but... It turns out I can use some help with stress management, and the benefits really do touch on all aspects of my life. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $100 off of your first month with Talkspace. 
To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com. Make sure to use the code SCOUNDREL to get $100 off of your first month and show your support for the show. That's SCOUNDREL and Talkspace.com. First, they left mom and dad's control, trading it for their sister Leah's domineering care. But now, traveling around the country, sure, they have chaperones, but Kate and Maggie are dictating when and where they'll work. They decide who they will or won't associate with. Like at parties, private parties, with well-respected politicians and actors and writers, big names that actually want to talk to them, two girls from Hydesville. It's opportunity and freedom. They also get a lot of respect. By 1850, spiritualism is hailed as one of the wonders of the age. Even Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, seeks their services. They become friends with the abolitionist, Frederick Douglass. By 1855, with Maggie, now 22, and Kate, now 18, spiritualism has become so popular that several congressmen demand the government sponsor a scientific study of it. America has medium fever. Talking to the dead is a nationwide phenomenon, and the Fox sisters aren't the only frauds to cash in. Other mediums begin to emerge all across the nation. Not always, but usually, they were girls and young women, just like Maggie and Kate. Still, there's no one more famous than Maggie and Kate Fox, so much so that people are not happy when doubters go vocal. On one particular night, the ghost of Benjamin Franklin is channeling himself through Maggie when someone points out that his grammar is awfully poor for a figure who was a proud linguist and writer. Well, maybe after you die, you forget when to use who instead of whom, right? All the same, thousands upon thousands continue to flock to the girls' performances. Including Arctic explorer Elisha Kent Kane. He'd come to one of the shows in Philadelphia a few years earlier, back in 1852. No, he didn't believe one minute of it, but he did like Maggie. They had become secretly engaged. Secretly, because Kane was not only a lot older, but also because Kane was embarrassed. He saw Maggie's career as simple sideshow quackery. He wasn't wrong that it was fake, but he still didn't want to advertise his engagement. So in 1855, Maggie is sort of trapped. Though she's making a lot of money and enjoying the celebrity of being a renowned medium, she's also exhausted. It seems her older sister, Leah, is leaning hard into her own agenda. And frankly, Maggie's a little tired of being tethered to Sister Kate, too. Something's changed, and now Maggie wants to have her own home, maybe even some children, and be able to settle down. But the family of Maggie's fiancé, you know, the Arctic explorer we just mentioned, they consider Maggie a heretic. They're Presbyterian, and they do not believe in the spiritualism nonsense. Elisha Kane is scared to announce a proper wedding, he kicks the can down the road. Instead, the compromise is to hold a secret ring exchange before he leaves for England. That's fine and good, but while he's in Europe, he falls sick. He tries to recuperate in Cuba, but dies in 1857. Maggie falls into a deep despair when she learns of Kane's death. Adding insult to injury, his parents forbid her from attending the funeral. They also deny her claim to a share of his estate. It's like their relationship never happened. Except it did happen. And so Maggie turns to the only link to Cain available, Catholicism. He'd once suggested Maggie might like Catholicism, and so she starts exploring. It's in this time of exploration that Maggie relies on the kindness of friends like Horace Greeley, who help her set up in a small apartment while she fights for the money Cain said he left her. But then there's Leah, and she is all business. Remember, Leah's had her own issues, Back in 1849, a family friend named Calvin Brown had accompanied the three Fox ladies on tour as a sort of protector. He didn't do all that much, but he did wind up marrying Leah in 1851 when she was 38. The two used the younger girl's income to rent bigger and bigger apartment buildings in New York. Then, just two years later, Leah had found herself a widow after Brown died from a respiratory issue. This is where things start to get complicated personal. Leah and Maggie are in a predicament. And isn't it ironic? Both have masqueraded as charlatan mediums for years, providing heartbroken people with lies, false hopes, 
and imaginary lines of communication to relatives past. Now that the despair of grief has stricken them, they could really use someone themselves to talk with their lost loved ones. Maybe they can talk directly themselves, if only the act were real. Leah sits alone in her ostentatious New York apartment, surrounded by the ghosts of her dear Calvin, ghosts that she can never reach. Suddenly, a sense of remorse overcomes her. How dare she profit from the lies told mercilessly to the masses? She took advantage of countless people who felt the same way she now feels. What has she done? But then she stops. No. No, she's not going to do it. She will not allow shame to overtake her. Not after coming this far. So, Leah quickly rebounds. Shortly after her husband dies, she marries again. This time to a very successful Wall Street executive who is also interested in spiritualism. And then, in her early 40s, she retires from the seance world altogether. She has a husband, she has respectability, and she has a lovely brownstone in New York City all her own. She's retired, and yet Leah still keeps a hand in the world of spiritualism, mainly because youngest sister Kate is still killing it. Just like Maggie, Kate took help from the Greeleys. Kate's actually living in the Greeley's house in the late 1850s. By now, she's taught herself to write messages with her non-dominant left hand, as though she's scribbling what the ghosts are telling her. She's also taught herself how to speak for one spirit while writing letters from another. And of course, she still does the rapping thing, better and louder than ever. Through the Greeley's, Kate meets a man named Charles Livermore, a very rich 31-year-old banker who mourns his wife. It's tragic, too. Livermore is really suffering. In January of 1861, his doctor is so worried about him that he does what most real physicians do not do. He sends his patient to go see a trance medium. Only the best will do. So that medium is Kate Fox. Kate meets with the heartbroken Livermore about every other day for nearly five years. She writes down the spirit's loving messages for Charles. Her piece de resistance is when she summons a glowing, gauze-like substance rising from the floor. It congeals into the shape of a woman, and slowly, it floats toward him. Livermore can see that it's his wife visiting from the afterlife. She's unable to speak, but reaches out her hand for him to touch. And Livermore clearly thinks he's touching someone, or something, because later, he describes how he held her hand, how he stroked her long hair, even kissed her on the mouth. Yeah, Kate seems to be graduating to a whole new level of spiritualism. In reality, it's a bunch of hidden wires used to create the perception of levitation. It's also entirely possible that by this time, Kate Fox knew how to hypnotize people, especially those who are highly susceptible to suggestion. While Kate is doing better than her sister Maggie financially, the fact is both of them are struggling emotionally. Their older sister, Leah, has always made sure to squeeze every last penny from their talents. And the girl's health and well-being were never a priority. For Leah, Kate and Maggie are the ultimate stage children. They grew up with little supervision or socialization outside of their work. It turns out that even the parties they're invited to are really just a way to recruit and groom clients. Both girls have been drinking alcohol almost as soon as they were out of their parents' home. Unfortunately, this habit has grown into alcoholism. And as a consequence, they're both beginning to suffer from blinding headaches. Maybe they're migraines, but more likely it's due to alcohol and morphine use and withdrawal. The arrival of the Civil War in 1861 brings even more attention to spiritualism and the Fox sisters, despite their declining health. Some estimate that as many as two million more people formally subscribe to the movement, possibly to find comfort amidst so many loved ones being slaughtered on the battlefield. And while the Fox sisters are not outwardly political, their friendship with Frederick Douglass and their Quaker roots make them attractive to abolitionist leaders. They see the sisters as the gold standard for those who can communicate with long-dead leaders, even those like Julius Caesar or Napoleon, take your pick. Their thought? Maybe America can shut this bloody war down sooner if military leaders will just listen to their sage military advice. It helps that the First Lady, Mary Todd Lincoln, is a devoted believer of the practice. The Fox sisters are not among them, but she has several mediums come to hold seances for her at the White House, mostly to communicate with her recently deceased son, Willie. 
1865, back in Hydesville, both the girl's parents pass away. Kate drinks more and more, often disappearing from her boarding house for days at a time. She still works, but her few close friends wonder if some kind of distraction might make her feel better, or at least help her put the bottle away. One of those friends decides to sponsor Kate's passage to England and France, where the spiritualist movement is gaining hold. People are begging the Fox sisters to hold seances in Europe, too. In the fall of 1871, Kate, now 34, sails to London. Here, she meets another spiritualist named Henry Jenkin. He's older and a widower, but also financially solid, and he completely accepts her unconventional lifestyle. They marry at the end of 1872, and from all outside appearances, are very happy. Soon into the marriage, Kate and Henry have two boys. Then, in 1875, Kate goes home to visit Leah and Maggie and some of her faithful friends. She's happy to see that Maggie looks better, and it seems like both Fox sisters have found some sense of peace and comfort away from alcohol. Things go well, and Maggie even decides to go with Kate back to England. She spends the better part of the next five years traveling back and forth between Europe and America, helping her sister create the world of spiritualism in England and enjoying the best parts of both family life and celebrity. But this all comes to an end in 1881. Kate's beloved husband dies from a stroke, leaving her with two young children. Though he had always provided well for his family, Jenkins' estate was not that large at the time of his death. Kate is left with less than 200 pounds to raise two children. And with no compelling reason to stay in England, Kate moves back to America with her sons, back to the home of Leah. Both Maggie and Kate start to drink again, this time in earnest. Kate is despondent over the death of her husband, and Maggie is not only in financial straits again, but she's struggling with her own faith. Her explorations in Catholicism have left her feeling like her fakery has been diabolical. It's 1882. Maggie, now 51, sits with a client. A despondent widower asks to communicate with his late wife to see if she's happy where she is now. Maggie, running through the motions and relying on muscle memory she's been using since she was a child, goes through her typical bag of tricks, snapping, popping, the usual. At one point, she looks up and sees the heartbroken man's eyes well with tears. He asks for more, just one more peat from his soulmate, taken from his family far too early. He pleads with her, but Maggie can't do it. This is the first time this has ever happened, and Maggie is speechless. The words she has said a million times just aren't coming out. She can't do it anymore. Can't lie to these people any longer. Guilt grips her jaw as her client trembles uncontrollably. Depression. Both Kate and Maggie fall deep into it and use alcohol and possibly cocaine to deal with it. Their genteel, upper-middle-class clients are increasingly too embarrassed to have them at Park Avenue soirees. One gentleman even spies Kate drunk in a saloon, the ultimate bad behavior for any woman in society at the time. And then the book happens. Older sister Leah writes a book, and in this book, published in 1885, Leah takes full credit for all of her younger sister's powers. Some of the content is even scandalous, hinting at sexual escapades during certain seances. It's damaging, and it sells. Worse, Kate's drinking reaches its lowest point. In 1888, Leah calls the Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Children, and the organization takes Kate's boys away from her. This sends her on an even faster downward spiral, and Kate's angry at her sister, really angry. She gives a tearful interview with New York World and discusses how people from all over have gifted them champagne and liquors since they were young girls. How were they supposed to resist? Yoked together in their misery, Kate and Maggie plot how they're going to deal with this turbulent world on their own terms. What if there's money to be made in completely rejecting what they've been selling for the last 40 years? And what if it can completely embarrass their sister Leah in the process? Even in her despondent state, Maggie comes up with a plan. It's 1888, she's now 57, and she happens to be in England for a client. When Kate wires her about losing her two sons, Maggie wires a telegram to Leah in the home for boys where they're being held. 
Maggie signs it with the name of the boy's paternal uncle, demanding that they be released. And it works. Kate gets her children back. But this isn't good enough. The Fox sisters are ready to get control back, any control, even if it's the last thing they do. Maggie writes an explosive letter to the New York Herald. Among other things, she calls spiritualism a curse, saying that people are fools to run after all the spirit mediums who rose after they became popular. In other words, the Fox sisters are the real deal, they remind the world. But all the fakers out there have made a mockery of the science. So Kate and Maggie want nothing more to do with it. It sends waves through the community, but not as many waves as when Kate and Maggie Fox decide to go a step further to hurt their sister and publicly confess. They work with a promoter to plan a demonstration in New York City, where they will show the world how they have been conning the hopeful public for all these years. It's October 21st, 1888. Maggie takes the stage at the New York Academy of Music with Kate in attendance for support. Over 2,000 people have packed the opera house. First, they listen to a dentist, who's also a part-time magician, denounce the evils of spiritualism before a demonstration of most of the Fox sisters' methods, where he shows that the slate writing, mind reading, and other magic tricks that the sisters have employed over the years are just that, tricks. But the audience isn't there to see a dentist do magic. They came to see Maggie Fox confess. They shout for the dentist to go pull teeth and boo him off the stage. At last, Maggie Fox ascends the stage in a black dress and a flowered hat with Kate sitting nearby. She's finally going to do what she should have done all those years ago. She's going to tell the truth. Maggie herself denounces spiritualism, the movement she and her sister basically started before waving the physicians onto the stage. Maggie slips a stocking-clad foot from her shoe and, placing it on a pine table, recreates the snaps and wraps that have ricocheted across so many halls and so many homes in the United States and Europe. This time, though, everyone can see the truth. The doctors present explain the demonstration to the stunned crowd. In addition to the demonstration, Maggie writes out a confession, signs it, and gives it to the press. It's published in New York World, the same day as the demonstration. It isn't just the 2,000 people in the music hall who know the truth, but readers all over the world. Publicly, Maggie Fox calls spiritualism an absolute falsehood from beginning to end, a belief based on the flimsiest of superstitions. Maggie and Kate call it, quote, one of the greatest curses the world has ever known. But the thing they created had outgrown them. Either people refused to believe that the Fox sisters were frauds, or they were resistant to cast spiritualism aside with them. Regardless, despite a speed bump, spiritualism continued on without Maggie and Kate Fox. Unfortunately for the Fox sisters, the over 50 grand in today's US dollars they made from their confession didn't go as far as they hoped. A year later, after outing herself as a fraud, Kate decides to come out of retirement and to step back onto the stage. It seems she's had a change of heart. Either way, the followers of the Fox sisters are diehard fans and they're ecstatic and not at all angry about the girl's time away. The public chalks it up to evil spirits that made their sisters deny their very existence. Again, psychology. However, it's physically too late for the Fox sisters to reinvent themselves. All their drinking has made a dent in their health, to the point that they're virtually unrecognizable to many of their former friends. Kate passes away at her home on Columbus Avenue on July 3rd, 1892, at the age of 55. And on March 8th, 1893, 59-year-old Maggie dies as well. She's been living in abject poverty, shuffled around from the homes of the few friends she has left. Older sister Leah passes away in 1890. For almost their whole lives, Kate and Maggie Fox tried to ignore the fact that they had defrauded so many people. They had no special connection to the dead. Any gift people saw was their ability to help people feel better about the afterlife. Through this long-form trickery, Kate and Maggie tried to hold on to the money they made and find their own happiness here in this life. Ultimately, it didn't work. Instead, it just grew to be a much bigger problem than they originally faced. But what drove the Fox sisters to go along so blindly and deceive so many? Obviously, the money had something to do with it. Well, it had a lot to do with it. To some extent, 
It's difficult to blame Kate and Maggie. They were merely children at the time it all began. They were essentially exploited child stars forced into a sideshow act by a greedy adult as so many children experience in Hollywood today. When their behavior was reinforced not only by their older sister, by the general public, the media, and even A-list celebrities of the day, how could they honestly tell what they were doing was wrong? By the time Maggie did, it was too late. To some extent, Maggie and Kate were as much victims as their exploited clients. Unfortunately, the deceit created in America in 1847 lingers on to this day. Even though all three Fox sisters have been long gone, nearly 130 years, their heavy contribution to the world of spiritualism still lives. Parapsychology followers still consider the Fox sisters as founders to that belief system, more a way of life, really, in which people believe that anything is possible if we're only just open to it. Today, there's no shortage of celebrity mediums. Descriptions of near-death experiences are commonplace. You've got New Age philosophies, hundreds of books, and scores of television shows and movies featuring conversations with the dead. But even those medium personalities that admit to manipulating appearances, the ones simply putting on a show, they're doing at least one thing toward the positive. They create a sense of closure and comfort for those grieving, even though done in a rather dishonest way. We'll close on this note. There is one more strange thing about this entire story. Remember in 1847, when the Fox sisters started their whole journey, all by saying they were able to communicate with a peddler who was murdered on their property? Well, in 1904, the New York Times printed a curious thing. The current owner of the farmhouse rented to the Fox family all those decades earlier had a visit from some children playing in the cellar. They'd accidentally broken one of the crumbling walls and lo and behold, stumbled on some bones. The owner of the farmhouse went on to conduct his own investigation and was surprised to learn that there were both inner and outer walls to the stone foundation. And between the two, he found a male human skeleton without a skull. Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is executive produced by Jason and Carissa Weiser and Colin Thompson. Today's episode was written by Julia Bricklin. It's produced by DJ Lubell and edited and sound designed by Anton Doty. Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is a cast original podcast. Hey everyone, Jason and Carissa here. If you're enjoying Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains, we would really appreciate it if you would leave us a rating and a review. It really helps us out. Thank you so much. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.